Welcome to the Agency Profit Podcast, a show dedicated to going deep space on agency operations, which is just as nerdy as it sounds. I'm your host, Marcel Petipoff. I'm the CEO of Parakeeto, a firm that helps digital and creative agencies measure and improve their profitability. Join me as I interview some of the smartest thought leaders and agency owners in our space and go deep into operations and metrics and all the other things you need to get right so you can spend less time worrying about operations and more time executing on your vision. Hey everyone, it's Marcel Pedapa here, CEO and founder of Parakeeto, and I'm so excited to welcome you guys to this episode of the Parakeeto podcast. That's still what we're calling it, three episodes in, because I don't have a better name, but I just want to produce content for you guys. That's what's most important here. I am so excited to have one of my favorite people in the agency space. Uh, it's a guy that I met recently at one of his events, and I have to say, within moments, there was a budding bromance. And I don't use that term lightly. I think this is a real deal. Uh, he is one of the friendliest faces in the agency space, and he organizes some of the best events I have ever been to in any category, bar none, hands down. I'm super excited to introduce you guys to my good friend, Carl Smith. What's going on, Carl? Nothing much. How are you, Marcel? I'm doing great now that you're here on my computer screen and I get to see that smile. Look at that smile, well, guys. I want to let you know, I'm going to record that intro. I'm going to send it to my mom. <laughs> say, this is what I do. I'm somebody, mom. You did it, man. You're well, if you're, if you're not somebody in your mom's life, you at least are somebody in my life. But I'll, I'll take it. I'll you're more it. than welcome. I will be a personal reference if you want to prove to your mom that you're doing <laughs> excellent things in the world. So, Carl, I'm super excited to have you here um, because you've got such a wealth of knowledge, both from your background, running your own agency, eventually building that and selling it, and now today working with agency owners from across the world in all different capacities, not just with owners, but also members of their team, high-level executives. I mean, you have... <laughs> just gone into every area and gained expert knowledge and facilitated expert conversations. So I'm just pumped for all the value that is going to come out of this conversation. Maybe I'm foreshadowing. I'm putting some pressure on you. Know. But we I'm set the bar high, but there's never been a bar I haven't reached. So <laughs> Yes, you're easy. You know, if I was going to look for you in a town, I would look for the bar and I'd be like, that's probably where Carl's sitting. And just listen for the laughter because somebody's <laughs> laughing at me. So I want to start by asking you a little bit about what got you into the agency space in the first place. It seemed like when you went to school uh, at the University of Florida, you maybe were a little bit confused about what you wanted to do, studying theater, advertising, and tourism. So a nice little soup of different things. But wow. what eventually got you into the agency space specifically? Well, you now you did your research there. I like that. I don't, maybe that's on LinkedIn. I don't know. It is actually. I, I thought I erased quite a bit of it. Um, so yeah, I couldn't get into UF uh, grade wise, which if, if you know the University of Florida, it's not that that tough to get in based on grades. Um, no, I, I mean it was a it was tough uh, for me, but I got in on theater scholarship. So theater was always my thing. Uh, you know if if. If you're really, really passionate about storytelling, then you want to be the story. And that was kind of, kind of it for me. That's why theater became such a thing. And then uh, getting into UF and theater, once I got there, man, everybody was wearing black and drinking coffee. And we were the number one party school in America when I was there, like according to Sports Illustrated. So it's real. <laughs> and uh, it was one of those things where I was just like, this sucks. Y'all are so depressed. Like, what is going on? Like, we're out from under the tyranny of our parents, and we can do all this stuff. And uh, then I met some people in the advertising group um, by way of literature. It turns out my grammar sucks, so I, I couldn't do anything there. And uh, ended up in advertising. It was awesome, but also wanted to travel. So tourism as a minor kind of came into play. Uh, and from there, realized that you know, I, I really didn't have much of a career as an actor. It was going to be bad dinner show theater, maybe cruise boat theater, but there was nothing that was going to make any money. Uh, so I ended up in advertising. There you go. 
Very cool. So shortly after you graduated, you got um, what I, I assume is one of your first jobs, like real jobs in the agency space working for a company called Husk Jennings at the time. Yep. And you spent a long time there yeah. moving up the ranks. Um, so I'm curious to know, like, obviously this was a while ago, but what did you notice as you were working through the ranks at Hus Jennings about the agency space, some things that you didn't like that you were like, if I started my own thing, I wouldn't do that. And some things that you learned that you thought were really important that you've carried with you through your career. Yeah, for sure. So I got the job at Husk. I actually interned there before I graduated. Okay, cool. And I am proud to say my mom got me the interview. <laughs> you know, it's uh, a lot of it is who, you know, but I remember going in for the interview and, um, Melanie, who's the only boss I'll ever claim to have had, uh, Melanie started talking to me about different things. And she said, what can I help you with? I said, will you look at my you know, classes that I have to choose from? And so she looked at the classes and she was like, this is all crap. I was like, I know it'd be great if I could actually go somewhere for like a summer and, you know, maybe learn on the job. And she was like, yeah, we don't offer internships. And I was like, oh, that's too bad because I would really do whatever you ask me to. And eventually, uh, got an internship there. Um, and it, it was, it was interesting because I convinced them to pay me <laughs> when they didn't even want to give me an internship. And then everybody, everybody in the company either loved me or hated me. It was really kind of interesting. Um, so, but I went through and what I found at the agency was just paradise. Uh, people were being creative and they were doing amazing things. And, and yeah, it was for companies like AT&T or um, Blue Cross Blue Shield, stuff like that. But you could just tell there was this passion that they were really putting everything they had into these projects. And then they were going out there and they were living, right? And then I go back to college and I call back maybe four weeks later. Um, and the person that answered the phone, Mary, who I worked with quite a bit after that, uh, I said, hey, I was just calling. I want to talk to Tom. She was like, yeah, he don't work here anymore. I was like, oh, uh, is Sherry there? No, Sherry don't work here anymore. And I started asking just different names. And she was like, yeah, there was a layoff. We had to lay off about half the company. Wow. I was like, what happened? And she was we got stiffed by a, a big company. And um, so, yeah. We had to let go. And that was my first introduction to the agency world. <laughs> that is hashtag agency life right there. Yeah. Big client pulls out from under your feet and all of a sudden you got to lay off half your staff. Yeah. So, so I stayed at Hus Jennings for 14 years. Um, originally I wanted to be a writer, but I wasn't that good. Uh, I, I was good at headlines. I was good at concept, but I body copy that kind of stuff. I was horrible at. And, uh, and you had to be a holistic writer. But people do account service, and that was kind of how it started. I would just go sit with the creatives and whatever they were working on, understand why they thought it was great, and then I would go sit with the clients and explain pretty much mimicking, right, exactly what the creatives had told me, and then trying to convince the clients. And I never went back to the creatives and said to change anything, right? I would explain how the goals had changed or things like that so that they could get there. But the one thing I learned early on was if you don't have a rationale, then you don't have a point. And you can't just say, make the logo bigger or any other cliche, cliche type stuff like that. Like you've got to really have a reason or else your creatives are gonna check out. And as soon as they check out, the work sucks. And then it's just a spiral. It's just, it's just gonna be bad. So yeah, I was there for 14 years until I got asked to uh, take over the company. Um, and in a weird moment, I said no. And it, it, it's funny, I was thinking about that today. That was a butterfly effect in my life. Had I said yes, what would my life be today? I wouldn't know you. We never would have met in Utah. I wouldn't have some of my best friends. Um, I probably still have my family. Like we were already connected. But there's just so many things that I've experienced that wouldn't have happened had I taken that job. But I probably have a lot more money. So it's, it's, it's like, oh, which, which way? I'm, I'm going to stick with this one because I got no choice. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, it's uh, shortly after you left, I think a couple of years later, um, Hus Jennings actually went through some kind of an acquisition, didn't they? Yeah. So they got acquired, uh, and I'm blocking on the name of the company. They changed their name to On Ideas, which got played with quite a bit locally. Um, you can take that on and flip it. Uh, yeah. Um, but 
they came from a company, the owners had done De Beers, Diamonds, um, they'd done all this huge stuff. And they needed a local presence because they had won Winn-Dixie, which is a huge supermarket chain in the Southeast. Mm. And so they came in and just sold the whole thing, um, which was great for them. It got them out of a lot of situations they were in. They were able to, to move on with their lives and do some stuff. But it was one of those things for me where I was just like, man, that would have been, that would have been weird. The reason I didn't take it was because, as the name suggests, Huss Jennings, it was a mom and pop shop. Yeah. But I didn't think they'd ever be able to let go. I didn't think they'd be able to let me run it the way I wanted to run it. And I had been the intern and they always saw me as the intern, mm. but they did ask me to take over. So maybe that's feedback for me. Maybe I couldn't let go. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. And so it sounds like that was the catalyst for you to go out and start your next uh, 13 or 14 year project, which was <laughs> uh, starting engine studios um, or engine Works. Sorry. So, yeah. Talk to me about that transition. So they offer you, uh, you know, the opportunity to take over the company. You yeah. say no. And then what happens? So I was having dinner over at their place, really nice place on the river that they built. And, you know, we're watching the sunset. We're having wine. And they're like, we think you should take over the company. And I, I just went, no. It's like, I didn't even, I don't even know how. And, and I was like, no, bring it back. But it was, it was out there. And, um, and I basically told them I saw what owning that company had done to them, that their kids had grown up and they barely got to see them and all this kind of stuff. And then I go and replicate it, right? Um, but that was in the 12th year, well, I guess closer to the 13th year that I was there. And uh, things just changed immediately. You could just tell I had betrayed them. Like, it was the only thing I ever wanted. When, when I interned, Melanie asked me what I wanted and I said, I just want to be indispensable. I just want to be the person that you have to have there. And then I bailed on them. Right. Um, but I think as I was there, one of the things you asked earlier was what was something that I learned? And this is nothing against the, the people that ran Husk. They did an amazing job. I mean, hell, Melanie was a botanist. So the fact that she was able to just launch an agency and run it for 20 plus years doing amazing work is, is just a testament to who she is and, and the amazing person she is. There was some inequality in that shop. Um, and this is true in, in the entire Southeast, at least definitely in the South. Account service people make a tremendous amount of money creatives generally don't. Mm -hmm. Now up in New York, you'll see creatives make a tremendous amount and account service doesn't. And creatives up in New York are notoriously strong-willed and they're just going to get their way. And in the South, account service is all about relationships. I can keep the client happy, so I get the money because I sit closer to it, right? Um, as a result, some of the people in that shop that I thought were much more talented, I was, I was a server, they were a chef. And so they just made a third of what I made. Mm. And one of my partners when I started Engine was Varick Rossetti, who was there. And we just agreed that everybody was going to get paid equally. Huge mistake. <laughs> oh, my God. It sounds amazing. But one thing that you find out uh, after doing something for a couple of years is that we aren't all created equal. Well, let me take that back. We're created equal, but then we screw it up with decisions that we make going forward, right? And there were times where... Verrick could create something amazing in half a day, right? He could create five amazing things in a day. Other people needed five days to create one amazing thing. And so that, that's a value right there, man. That's just like crazy. So then you get into that situation. Um, but we kept that, that concept of time equity, of value, of always making sure everybody got what they deserved. One thing we had was that if you were with the company for two years, you either got offered some level of ownership or you were let go, right? If in two years, somebody is not really valuable, then they probably shouldn't be there. We had all kinds of dumb shit we did, right? Um, we, <laughs> I think one of my favorites though was that when we first started, because we were all equal, there couldn't be a boss. So we had what we called the three strike rule or the driver's license rule. And what that meant was if you expose the company to a liability three times in a 12 month period, you were gone. Like nobody could save you. And, uh, and that happened to one of our original partners. <laughs> so it was just like, Oh God, here we go. So, um, so that was engine was fun. And, um, for 12 years, it was amazing. 
uh, working once we got remote, uh, my original partners left. One went on to become the design director at Square and uh, just launched his own shop, First Principle. The other one decided he wanted out of web and started doing a bunch of video stuff and has got just amazing illustrator. Um, but I went uh, distributed and we grew to about probably in the high 30s in terms of people. And the company just went crazy with growth, but I didn't want a management layer. So we inverted the sales process where the team would decide what they wanted to work on. They could form their own teams for projects and things like that. What was interesting, it's called the jellyfish model. What was interesting about it was when I was in charge, it was all corporate and finance and big stuff because I knew it was safe. Mm -hmm. I knew they had the money. They weren't going to complain about that other comma that might show up in an estimate, right? They were just going to say, yeah, that's fine. But when the team took over, suddenly we were organic foods. We were fantasy sports apps like football and basketball and stuff, right? And, um, and then we got into big data. So it was like the developers really wanted these just juicy problems to solve. So that was, that was pretty interesting, right? But, but the thing about Engine was, and, and to a fault, always let everybody have a voice. Sometimes those voices shouldn't be in there. Sometimes the voices shouldn't have been in the company. That was a different issue where I, I didn't have the, the hard will to necessarily always enforce what needed to happen because I also didn't want to be in charge. I mean, I've never wanted to be in charge. That was the problem. So, but yeah, engine engine did great for a, a long, long time. And then once I found the bureau, uh, I was kind of torn between two lovers. So <laughs> it's uh, what I love about you, Carl, is how humble you are. I mean, you sit here, you, you talk openly about all the mistakes <laughs> that you made, but the reality is that you built a very successful and very reputable agency. I mean, you guys were an authority figure in your space for quite some time. Um, what were some of the things that in your mind you did really well that um, led to that level of success? Uh, I would say definitely letting clients or prospects know up front that if they didn't want to work with somebody that was going to tell them no, that they shouldn't hire us. And I would tell them all the time, it's like, look, if you're going to do something that's not going to achieve your goals, we're going to push back and say no. And if you don't want that, if you just want somebody to make it pretty, if you just want somebody to build it, then go find them. We want to understand your business more than we want to understand your project. And I think that got us to the right clients. Uh, the other thing was every project, once we had the client happy, that's when we started to make it the project we wanted it to be. That was huge, right? And, and that was from Melanie. Melanie used to come in and say, okay, the client's happy, get to work. And what that meant was this project, if it was going to get us the next it had to be better than approved. It had to be just amazing, right? I almost said magical. That, that's pushing it. But it had to be amazing. And it was the same thing at Engine. Like if, if we knew there were certain things we wanted to make better, like we took the time after approval and before launch to just work them and, and make them better. And I, I guess the, other, the final thing that I'll say um, that really led to engine success was making sure, and this is, this is a tough one. I think it also led to a lot of our failures, but we always made sure that the project was more important than the relationship. We never let a project suffer because we were worried it would upset the client. That meant that every project we launched was the best we could make it. Uh, but it also meant we pissed off a lot of people because we were not that flexible. Uh, we actually had a situation um, with a government client where they wanted a fully accessible flash site. <laughs> and we were just like, you want two sites. You want a flash site and you want a fully accessible site. You, you can't do, and we're going to have to double the estimate and all this kind of stuff. And we were working with another group and they got really pissed off. You can't talk to the client that way. I was like, oh, that's weird because it looks like I just did, <laughs> right? And then they came back and, the, you know, they didn't have the budget. We were like, well, then you can't do the flash site. You have to do the accessible site, which is the right thing to do anyway, which upset the other group um, because they wanted the awards and they wanted all the, that kind of stuff. Mm. So, so that, that's it. You know, we, when we were young, uh, we were really, really brash. Later, we learned to just explain ourselves. 
but but I think those were a lot of the things that really lifted us up. Um, that and speaking, like getting on every stage we could find, sharing what we were doing, and openly sharing on the blog or any other format what we were doing, what was working, and what wasn't. Mm. That's awesome. I mean, I mean, I love that, um, you know, it came back to you to getting the right clients. And I think that that's something that a lot of agencies struggle with. Um, it, yeah. for, for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, being in a moment of scarcity and taking work that maybe in their gut, they know is not going to be fun. And that it becomes a snowball effect. And I'm sure you've spoken to tons of agency owners that just have clients that drive them up the wall. Um, and it's cool to be able to build an agency that attracts. Yeah. Um, you know, the clients that you actually want to work with and the projects that your team is excited about. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think one of the, one of the things about that, and we used to tell clients when we were, when I was explaining the estimate, I would say, look, if we lose on a cost, I'm cool with that. But if you're telling me there's somebody that can do a better job, I want to have another conversation. <laughs> like I want to understand what they have that we don't so we can get better. Right. And a, and a lot of times it would just lead to people saying, yeah, you lost on cost. You were like twice what they were. I was totally cool. Never fought it, never discounted ourselves, anything like that. But the other thing was understanding that the more transparent we were with the team, the more they would understand those projects we sometimes brought in. So I would do um, weekly calls and monthly calls. And, and basically because we were distributed, we use video a lot. Mm. And so we'd have the midweek update and I would explain basically where we were financially, but I would never explain, I would never say the actual number. Now, if somebody asked me, I would tell them because we had books transparency. We had, a, we got to salary transparency wow. and we got to this time where, you know, our, our monthly, well, let's see our payroll every two weeks. I want to say it was up close to $40,000 every two weeks, wow. right? which for us, it might have even gotten more than that. I, I really I blocked all of it out. But um, it was one of those things where instead of telling people, we've got $400,000 in the bank, I would say, well, we've got three months expenses in the bank, right? Total mind shift, right? Like at the context of 400,000, let's go to Vegas and get stupid, <laughs> right? The concept of three months is, that's not that long. And so if, if you brought in, if you had the opportunity to, to work on a restaurant site, might be a Mexican restaurant. But you knew there was only three months worth of, you know, expenses in the bank. You'd be like, I'm going to rock the crap out of some fajitas. I'm just going to make this thing look amazing. Right. And that, that to me became a big part of the, the understanding was sharing the context with people of why things were there. Salary transparency, I don't recommend, by the way, just throw them in a pit with a knife and see what happens. It'll be fine. <laughs> Do you want some free resources to help you measure and improve your profitability? If you do, then I want to tell you about our agency profitability toolkit, which you can grab absolutely free in the show notes or by heading to parakeeto.com forward slash toolkit. It's packed with training videos, cheat sheets, templates, and all kinds of other great resources to help you start measuring and improving the essential metrics that are going to drive better profitability in your business. And it's helped thousands of other agencies around the world do the same. So I want to encourage you to go and grab a copy of that. And if you'd rather get in the fast lane and just have our team of experts guide you through the process of measuring and improving your profitability, then I want to encourage you to apply for a consultation at parakeeto.com. And with that, I want to thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the episode and I'll let you get back to it. Yeah, I've heard mixed reviews on, you know, financial transparency, but uh, there's, I feel like there certainly is a happy medium there. Salary would be difficult to get to. <laughs> I feel like we could do a whole podcast episode on that. Maybe we'll have to bring you back for talking about financial transparency. Um, so to, we've talked about the highlights. You've talked about a lot of the mistakes that, that you know, you might've made along the way. One thing that I, I, I like to bring up just because I feel like there's a lot of people that might be listening that are maybe going through a rut. Um, was there ever a time in that period of, you know, roughly 12, 13 years that uh, things got really bad and you felt like you were on the edge of having to shut everything down. What was like that really dark moment that you experienced uh, while you were building that company? Ah, there were a few of them. Um, I would say one was realizing that dividing the money equally was going to be really difficult because I had a family and everybody else was fairly young and single. Mm. And so it's, this is, this is the history, you know, it, on my tombstone, it'll, it'll, it'll read, it sounded great in my head. 
right? It's because I have these ideas that I just think that's a great blog post. And then I run a company based on it. What? So <laughs> I, I would say that was a tough one. Um, and my partners ended up wanting out and leaving and, and it was great. They had other things they wanted to do. So that kind of fixed itself. Uh, I'll say letting, letting the team make its own decisions when they weren't necessarily the most informed, well, not informed, but the most experienced. I think, I think the biggest one is uh, we had a client, um, really big client, working on a project, had about 14 people on this project. And the team decided that they wanted to go stay with the client uh, for a couple of weeks. And I knew what that was gonna do money-wise. But I had given them autonomy, right? Like, you know, Dan Pink was all in my head. You know, autonomy, mastery, purpose. I was gonna give them all. And um, we also had an invoice going out that month that was about $92,000. And to do this trip, we were gonna have to get that money up front. So that was gonna put us over 100,000. And in my head, I was just like, whoa. Like if, if I were to get a $100,000 invoice, I don't know, but I'm not this guy. So I should have let it go, but I didn't. And the team rebelled. I mean, I got a six page scroll just tearing me up one side and down the other about how I don't know what the project is. I don't know why I'm, you know, in, I don't know anything about what's going on. And uh, that night, I, I basically responded, I'm so angry right now, I can't respond. I'll respond in the morning. And I did not sleep that night. I just stayed up. I was pacing. I was like, tell me what to do. I'll tell you what to do. You know, I stood up on my ego and, and beat my chest and all this kind of stuff. And then the next day, it actually turns out to be a good story, a really cool story. Uh, the next day, I just said, let's just have a conversation in front of the whole team. Like, we'll get all 30 plus people on a Skype call. And we're just going to talk this out because it was public. I mean, like, you know, my, my lashing was public. Everybody was there and watched it. And um, we got on this call. Uh, I offered if he wanted to go first or if I should go first. He said, you go first. I said, I'm sorry. You know, I screwed up. I should have talked to you first. I shouldn't have just gone straight to the client. Uh, I probably made it worse because now I've alerted them that maybe there's some things going on, right? Which there aren't. Y'all have been doing a great job. So all I can do is apologize. And then he said, you know, I accept your apology and I apologize. I should have contacted you directly. I shouldn't have made this a public thing. And also you're right. I mean, the cost is kind of outrageous and we were taking advantage, not realizing it. We just thought it would be great to hang out with him and for us to be together. And we just weren't thinking about it from a fiscal standpoint. Like, what does this mean? I went, all right, great. Now during that time, one of the people that was working with us uh, actually went out on Twitter and it was one of the best tweets ever. Uh, at most companies, when things go to hell, doors get slammed shut and engine works and walls get knocked over. And That's it was awesome. just like, whoa. But yeah, I think that was, um, that was a pivotal moment for me. Like I had to figure out, do I want to be important or not? Do I want to run this or not? Now at the end of the, at the, end of the company, um, you know, one of the things that I realized was there's only one neck in the guillotine when it comes to legal. So you can have the flattest structure in the world and you can be proud of what you've built. But if there comes a day when you're getting sued, they don't care how flat your bench is. <laughs> They're suing the person whose name is on the corporate paperwork. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was me, right? So we never had any legal problems until one day we did. And it's interesting. I had a, a friend contact me who ran a really big rail shop, like a monster rail shop, and asked me, how do you deal with getting sued? I was like, oh, it's really easy. I don't. What are you talking about? And um, then one day, you know, I, that happened. And um, it turned out we were locked up. I mean, we, we had ironclad contract. Everything was great. There was nothing that could happen, but it just froze you when you realized somebody felt you had done them wrong. Mm. Well, that's, it's funny how one of your worst moments is actually also one of the best all at the same time. <laughs> it really it's so funny does. how life does that to us sometimes. It's all about decisions you make <laughs> in the heat of that moment, yeah. That's a great story. So um, obviously you spent some time at NGEN. 
that was awesome. And then yeah. you talked about your love affair with the Bureau of Digital, which yeah. had existed long before you took it over, which is now what, almost five years ago, four and a half years ago, roughly. I took it over a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, and the Bureau, I think started six years ago. So I think that's right. Like around 2012. So talk was, about, yeah. Talk about how you discovered the Bureau and what made you want to transition <laughs> to doing so that. I, did, I, I discovered the Bureau uh, with an email in my inbox <laughs> that was from Greg Stoy and Greg Hoy, collectively known as the Gregs. And they basically said, we're getting 20 agency owners together in Portland and we would like for you to join us and talk about how we're running our shops. This was happy cog. This was like in our world in, in the mid 2000s, they created responsive web design, they created web standards, um, all these things like originated there, right? Over time, like they were constantly innovating. They were constantly changing the way that we did stuff. And so I just wrote back with two words, why me? Like, I didn't even know they knew who I was, like who we were or anything like that. And they basically said, we've been reading about your work model, the jellyfish model, and you're either full of shit or you're onto something. And I replied back, I'll be there. Right. So go to Portland. Um, saw some friends that I didn't realize were going to be there. Um, Aaron Mintley from uh, Electric Pulp, Kelly Goto from GoToMedia, um, who wrote a book, Web Redesign Workflow That Works. It's like one of the original books on on process for web. And uh, then there were other people there like Christina Halverson who coined the term um, content strategy, right? And runs Confab. And you got Mike Montero and Erica from Yule who are like just icons. And so it was just this huge um, inferiority walking in. Like I was just like, oh God, I don't think I belong here. I don't know why I'm here. And then people start talking. I'm like, hey, wait a minute, what? No, don't do that. Do this, right? And suddenly you realize that people you thought were crushing it are getting crushed. And then people who don't know they're doing okay are like, shit, I'm okay. Right. And everybody's helping each other. And uh, Gabe Levine was there. Uh, he's one of my best friends to this day. In fact, he was just texting me some things about our president. So he's like, you won't believe what he's saying to the UN right now. It's like that we don't need them is my guess. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but Gabe actually, I used the term permalancer and he lost his shit on me. He said, what did you just say? And I said, permalancer. And he goes, what does that term mean to you? I said, well, it's a freelancer, but you don't intend to just have them temporarily. It's a permanent relationship. He goes, oh, the IRS is on you, man. It's like, I, I don't know if this room's bugged, but if you ever use that term in public, like you're just dodging payroll taxes. <laughs> and I was like, I don't understand. And so we had this conversation at a bar where he sat and looked away from me. He goes, I'm going to, I'm going to look over here, but you look at me and I want you to talk to me. And I was like, Holy shit. Do you want plausible deniability? Is that what this is? And he was like, Hey, I was like, all right. So he would ask questions and, and then immediately he was our lawyer. After I had written an article <laughs> in a magazine about how contracts were worthless. <laughs> Oh my God. You know, when you, as you get older, you learn, you grow. Um, but yeah, so that event, uh, when it was over, people were hugging, uh, people stayed in touch. Slack didn't exist at the time. Right. But Basecamp was there. So we were all in Basecamp, got back together, uh, a year later, most of that group showed up and then happened again. Most of that group shut up and then, uh, other events started springing up out of it. And I just fell in love with this idea of building community and helping each other. And I was at that point in my career where I think I was just exhausted of not having anyone to lean on, mm. um, which I think most owners don't, operators don't, creative directors don't, digital PMs don't, tech leads don't. It's like anybody who's in a management role but has a creative soul, like we don't understand how to manage. <laughs> and we need people to be there to help us along. We can't find it in a book, although we'll find great ideas. But we need somebody that we, need, we can pick up a phone we can get on a, a slack call whatever and just say what what do i do and that person can say this is what i did and it didn't work or this is what i did and it did work but you need humans and that's what the bureau is about and that was just what i fell in love with yeah 
Well, I can say from experience, having been to operations camp in Utah, that you've taken this concept that you fell in love with and you've really embodied it and you've taken it to the next level. And it's funny because I've, I experienced the exact same thing when I went to Utah and the amount of value that I got from spending, <laughs> it was like three days. It was yeah. just unbelievable. And it's all, like you said, the nuanced stuff that I had spent hours Googling previous to this, I could never figure out the answer of like, how exactly do you calculate, you know, capacity for your team and with, you know, factoring in contractors, but it's a conversation you can just have with somebody who's doing yeah. it. Um, and it, it was just amazing. And um, so Walk me through, like, I mean, over the time that you got involved with the Bureau of Digital, how many yeah. events have you put on and, you know, like, how many <laughs> agencies have you dealt with? It's got to be a lot. Uh, so realizing that I was an attendee, um, I guess in 2000, maybe 2009 um, or 2010, I bought in. Um, basically I had the comp engine was running so well on its own that I kind of stopped going to work and, uh, just would travel and go to events and do all this stuff to get, you know, exposure for the company. <laughs> sure. And uh, that worked out well. Um, but the bureau, uh, Greg Hoy and Greg Stroy were just like, you know, if, if you want to come over here and be a part of this and I was like, yeah, let's do it. Uh, so I would say we are. I mean, we have to have hit 50 events, if not more, um, and thousands of, of individuals. Uh, when you start looking at the summits, like Owner Summit and Digital PM Summit, which are bigger, right? Mm -hmm. They're like traditional events in the morning, and then they're, they're breakout groups in the afternoon, which are just conversations or sometimes workshops, that kind of stuff. Um, those are hundreds of people. And uh, the fifth Owner Summit's coming up in Austin this uh, next February. And Digital PM Summit, we just had uh, the sixth one. So you got to figure there's a lot of people coming in through those. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the camp side, I mean, it's definitely, God, it's got to be six or 700 people that have come through camps. Wow. And those are the ones, right? Like you've been to a camp. It's like when you, when you go to a camp and you don't realize it at first. And you look at it, you go, ah, it's kind of expensive, right? But then once you get in the room and you have that first conversation, that first breakthrough, somebody says that was worth the cost. That happens every time. Like it's in the back of somebody's mind. They go, that was worth it right there. And then you see people stay in touch, right? Mm. That, that to me becomes like one of the great things. Like you were at the zoo, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I see you at the zoo and I'm like, who is he with? Well, there it was. who was it? It right. was Evan, yeah, Evan and uh, and Melanie, who I met yeah. in Utah at one of your events, and yeah. uh, and another bromance. Thanks. To, I mean, it's like I come into contact with Carl, and the bromances <laughs> are, just, are just budding all over the place. Um, yeah. But no, you're absolutely right. And well, you know what? One of the other things that I loved about the event was that it was probably one of the most valuable valuable events I've ever been to um, in any category. So this like includes all the personal development events that I've been to, anything in the agency space, but I didn't feel like I was working when I was there and I didn't feel burnt out when I left. I had learned yeah. a lot, my brain was exploding, I had notes and notes and notes, but it also felt like a vacation, which is testament to the level of experience that you create. And I love that you don't pack the day with nine hours of, of yeah. and content. Like it's a nice, easy pace um, and you design it so well. I mean, like I could speak for hours just about how <laughs> that one camp was and how much I want to go to all of them now going forward. Um, and just uh, all of this to say, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard of the Bureau or you haven't checked out an event and you are involved in an agency, it's something you've got to do um, and you will not regret it. I promise you that. You can, you can come and take it up with me if you don't like it. <laughs> uh, leave Carl alone. He has a family and a dog to take care of and all of these agency <laughs> owners. So you can come talk to me about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is... It, it's, it really is one of a kind, and I've, I've yet to encounter another community that is run as well as this one is. Um, so I'd love to know, you know, having talked to so many people, what are some of the really common challenges that um, you see agencies dealing with um, time and time and time again when they get into these conversations? I think the biggest one um, is not looking for help is trying to do everything yourself. Now, specifically with owners, I'll, I'll see them all the time feel like they should be able to. And, and part of it is like, 
I don't know if, if you're this way. I mean, you're kind of a young fella. But <laughs> when I go to the doctor, like if I'm going for a physical, I want a few months to get in shape before I go. <laughs> right? I don't want to get on the scale and go, oh, God, I'm looking a little heavy. I want to make sure I go and ah, you're awesome. I think it's the same thing with owners. And it could be the same thing with managers overall. You're worried to ask for help because somebody's going to ask a question and you don't want to tell the answer because you're not sure if you're doing it right. Mm. And so you try to clean up stuff or you, you, you're worried. But I think the biggest issue, and, and actually it was uh, Jeff Wilson from 352 in Atlanta. He was the first person I heard say this. I'm not sure if he was the first person to say it, but he said, you know, the person who got you to hear probably can't get you to hear. He was talking about himself. I think that's the thing. You have to bring in other people sometimes to take your company to the next level. Uh, I think that's probably the, the biggest. The other is the, the challenge around growth. And I have a real issue uh, with LinkedIn overall right now. So many talking heads and everybody's an expert. And then you dig into their profile and you're like, what? Um, and I think an expert is somebody who feels they have nothing left to learn. So like that, that word expert just annoys the crap out of me, right? But um, one of the things that I see is growth, right? Growth is a challenge for agencies. And it's a challenge across the board because, first of all, does growth mean headcount or does it mean what I can do with the existing team? Um, and then once you hit a certain area, it's like, do I need management? And I bring that in from the outside and that's going to impact my culture in a super negative way. You might not even see that. Your visibility into growth is horrible. And then you think it'll allow you to take on new projects, but why are you doing it? Like, do you need more projects? Do you think there's going to be more money, higher profitability? Like, what's the purpose? And so you see all these growth coaches and all these growth hacks and you're just like, what? Why would you do that? Like, if you've got a great thing right now, you need to assess what it is uh, before you start worrying about your systems falling apart and your original team leaving because they're frustrated and don't know the purpose of the company anymore and, and all these things. So I, I think that's it. A lot of times we aim in a direction because we see others going there and we think it's right, but we never take the time to assess where we are right now and if it's a pretty cool place. So I think that's the other challenge I see most agencies having is just trying to figure out why they're running in the direction they are and how to get there if it is where they want to be. I mean, I can definitely agree with, you know, those two statements I've heard, you know, having spoken to a lot of people both yeah. within your camps and outside, definitely two areas that a lot of people seem to struggle with. And I think you're right about the agency space sometimes being a lonely world because we think of each other, you know, generally agency owners think of each other as competitors, even though in a lot of cases, they're not really competitors. They're right. differentiated. They're in different markets. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, that can hold people back from having the really meaningful conversations that yeah. uh, they could be having if they were inside one of your events. Yeah. Rocking and out. collaborating. I mean, that's the thing. Agency collaboration is a big deal. It's, it's a way to grow without overcommitting. Mm. You can do more, you can learn more, all of those great things. And, and I've got to say this, just a little tiny little rant. I saw an authenticity coach on LinkedIn the other day. What does that even mean? <laughs> You're going to tell me how to be me, right? And, and if you're an authenticity coach helping me with my personal brand, well, if I've got a personal brand, that means I'm modifying who I am. So that's not authentic. You're killing me. <laughs> Come on. Can't we just be us? Carl, Is that okay? I'm just going to throw something out here and <sighs> just say that maybe you and me need to like just start our own podcast that's not professionally <laughs> related. It'd be like Joe Rogan where we'll just sit around and talk about stuff. Because, uh, yeah. man, we can The authentic podcast. You got it. The authentic. <laughs> The authentic podcast. We're just going to say shit. And I'm just noticing uh, the note you left for yourself on your whiteboard there. I didn't see that until just now. Which note is that? <laughs> I'm going to zoom. If the, the video I'm going to post produce, I'm going to zoom in on this. The one that says, does that say Marcel is dead sexy? That's very, very. You know, occasionally I have thoughts and I like to capture them in different ways. I've also drawn something. Um, if. Right now, probably better for later. I'll, you know what? I'll just, I'll send that to that other email address you gave me. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the one for things that don't belong in my inbox. Um, all right. 
<laughs> so with all of this, you. I, think you I want to make sure. Around. I I might. I'm, you're catching me off guard here, Carl. But I should have been expecting <laughs> this. I should have been ready because you never know what you're gonna get. They say Carl is like a box of chocolates. You just. Oh. You never know. Sweet, and you never know what you're going to get. So um, I want to leave the audience, of course, they're probably listening to you, listening to all of these stories about the events, which, again, highly encourage everybody to go to. So I'd love for you to share with them how they can find out more about you, the Bureau of Digital, and some of the events that are coming up. There's always events coming up. So talk about that. Yeah, there are always events coming up. Uh, So for the rest of the year... Let's see, we've got a forecasting workshop in New York that's going to happen in November um, that's still got availability. That's with Rob Har from Sparkbox. That's Rob knows his stuff. Um, we've got a women's leadership camp, which is sold out. Sorry, everybody. Uh, we've got Digital PM Camp in Asheville, which is in November. We've got Operations Camp and Creative Director Camp in New Orleans in December. If you haven't been to New Orleans in December, it is pretty amazing. Um, and then it just, it just rolls on. We've also got new events. We're, we're doing some town halls. That's going to be interesting. We're bringing in alumni to sit in a meeting forum to talk with us about what they'd like to see in 2019. Mm. So I'm excited about that. Uh, and then if you want to find us, bureauofdigital.com. I apologize. Uh, bureau is one of those tricky words. I don't know why. <laughs> but it is B-U-R-E-A-U. I think I've done it correctly now after two yes. years. Uh, so Bureau of digital.com, you can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn, just Carl Smith. And if you do Carl Smith Bureau of Digital, I'm sure I pop up there and uh, would love to hear from you. I, I basically spend my weeks talking to people who are doing crazy, awesome stuff, but need help. So if you need help, reach out. That, and I can speak to that too, because that's how we met. I sent you an email and next thing you know, we were on a phone call. And I and- said, go away. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was like, how can I help you? And here we are. <laughs> Here we are. By the way, if you check out the website, guys, Carl publishes some amazing content on the blog, uh, one of which is a, a podcast interview with this great startup called Parakeeto. What? Yeah, you got to listen to that episode, guys. It's, it's a good one. And I think Melanie was just on the podcast too, wasn't she? She was, yeah. Awesome. And her I, episode's doing really well. I don't know what happened with our episode, but, but her episode's amazing. She must be more popular than I am. I guess that, no. that's just the reality of life. So with that, guys, uh, I want to wrap this up and I want to start by thanking you, Carl, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming on here, sharing your war stories, sharing your tips and tricks, and most importantly, sharing how everybody can get access to the incredible events that you put on. Uh, Hey, no problem, man. Thank you. And thanks to everyone at home that is listening at home, at the office, in your car, wherever you're listening to this. I hope you got some value. Let us know. Send us an email. Drop us a comment. Uh, Get in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever, and let us know what your takeaway was from this podcast. And I encourage you to tune in next time as I bring in more of my friends from the agency community to share golden nuggets of value with you. So thanks again, Carl, for being here. Thanks to all of you, and we'll see you in the next episode. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you've ever found yourself thinking, man, I get so much value from this podcast. I wish there was something I could do to return the favor. Well, today's your lucky day because you can leave us a review wherever you're listening to this. And it is incredibly helpful. Of course, if you haven't grabbed a free copy of the Agency Profit Toolkit, go and get that. It's got tons of free resources to help you improve your profitability. If you're looking to get in the fast lane and get help from experts to improve your profitability and measure your most important metrics, then apply for a consultation at parakeeto.com. We'd love to chat with you and figure out how we can help. With all of that, thank you so much for being a listener and we will see you on the next episode.